it's very, very important that companies be aware of their own products and really know them backwards and forwards and be aware of their suppliers and how those parts and components for their products are being manufactured. Welcome to the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practice Group's podcast, All Things Investigations. The Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Investigation Practices Group represents many of the premier companies around the world, providing advice on issues spanning the full anti-corruption and compliance spectrum. In this podcast, host Tom Fox and members of the Hughes Hubbard Anti-Corruption and Internal Practice Group will highlight some of the key legal issues involved in white collar and other investigations, both domestically and internationally. We will tackle topical issues involved in investigations, as well as explore how companies can prevent and detect issues that arise in conducting investigations on a worldwide basis. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back for another episode of All Things Investigations, the Hughes Hubbard podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to have Tyler Grove with me. Tyler, first of all, welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to visit with me today. It's a pleasure to be here. Tyler, could you tell us your professional background? I started off, actually, at the firm as a paralegal, and then I rejoined as a summer associate, and then a full-time associate for the last 10 years or so, so I'm somewhat of a, a lifer at the firm. I think you're the first lifer I've met. Maybe Mike. No, I don't think Mike D was a paralegal, so I think you may have. That's right. That's right. So what's your current practice, Tyler? Substantively, I cover sanctions and export controls in addition to anti-money laundering and foreign investment issues. Really, my practice has three main areas, compliance counseling, enforcement and investigations, and then corporate diligence and CFIUS filings. I'm somewhat of a jack of all trades, which I like to believe empowers me to spot issues that more specialized lawyers might miss and provide more holistic advice. So what I would like to focus on is the part of your practice around sanctions levied by the Biden administration based upon the invasion of Ukraine. But before we get there, we may actually have to take a step back because I wanted to start with what I saw as an outsider of the ramping up of sanctions during the Trump administration. Did you experience that same sort of increase in both legal work and counseling for clients during the Trump administration? Yeah, and it's actually been somewhat of a good trial run, I think, for what we're seeing now with the very rapid developments with respect to Russia and Ukraine. In particular, I think, even going back to the Obama administration, from Russia's first invasion of the Crimean Peninsula, I think we saw a lot of rapid developments there, followed by the Venezuelan crisis. And we saw a similar series of quickly developing sanctions against Venezuela that we had to respond to. And most recently, President Trump's actions towards China, I think, have really set the stage well for us to be able to respond swiftly now. So it's almost an evolution through different administrations, but a consistent approach by the professionals at OFAC and the Department of Treasury. I I think that's fair to say, correct. So I'd now like to turn to what you see as the approach the Biden administration took and has taken really starting in February of 2022 uh, down to us recording this in late May of 2022? Well, the Biden administration has been clear from really the start of his presidency that he intends to take a more multilateral approach than sanctions under the Trump administration and his predecessors. We've certainly seen that play out with the Russia sanctions. We've really seen nearly identical controls imposed by the United States and its key allies, mainly the EU, 
UK, Canada, Japan, and South Korea. And in terms of the controls themselves, the Biden administration has focused on targeting defense, finance, energy, more recently, electronics, aerospace, and marine industrial sectors. They've also targeted the Russian government, key oligarchs supporting the government and their families. And then, as we'll discuss a bit later, I think, exports of high-tech items and luxury goods. And at the same time, I, I note that there has been an effort by the administration to really try to mitigate the unintended consequences of these actions, mainly through the issuance of general licenses and other authorizations to allow U.S. and other Western companies to wind down their relationships with sanctioned parties or, in some instances, continue those relationships. So is this the most robust, consistent set of sanctions you've seen in your professional career? It has certainly been the most comprehensive set of actions in recent memory. On the sanctions front, the restrictions have been more or less in line with past actions. They've largely consisted of adding companies and individuals to the SDN list, the specially designated nationals list, that is, or imposing limits on dealing in debt and equity, again, as the U.S. first did in response to Russia's invasion of Crimea in 2014. But really where I think these have been somewhat unprecedented has been in export controls. And in particular, two things really stick out to me. First, the U.S. imposed what I like to call a soft embargo on any items subject to its jurisdiction and classified on the commerce control list. When this first came out, it applied only to items in categories three through nine, which are mostly high-tech electronics and similar items. But then they subsequently expanded that to all items on the commerce control list. It also captures things like aircraft and related parts. And beyond this, even some things that aren't on the list, which are known as EAR-99 items, could require a license now if they're considered a so-called luxury good or an industrial material or tool. Um, the second thing that really jumped out to me is that the U.S. expanded its controversial foreign direct product rule that it applied to Huawei under the Trump administration. And so now instead of applying to a single company, it applies essentially to an entire country. And this has had the effect of making even non-U.S. origin items subject to U.S. jurisdiction and therefore subject to the licensing requirement I just discussed if those items are the direct product of software technology described on the commerce control list. So is it too early to assess the effectiveness? Will it be months or years down the road? Or can you even begin to make kind of a response to that question now? So although Russia is not comprehensively embargoed, as a result of these recent actions, most Western companies have voluntarily elected to suspend their operations and pull out of Russia. My sense is that this has surprised probably even the Biden administration and may encourage further future reliance on sanctions as a principal foreign policy tool, especially if the U.S. can coordinate its actions with other key allies. And so in that respect, I think it can be viewed as a success. At the same time, however, the ultimate goal of the sanctions here is to pressure Russia to stop its invasion of Ukraine, which obviously has not yet occurred. But nevertheless, we are starting to hear reports of supply chain concerns in Russia, as well as reports of dissension among some of Russia's elite. And so the primary goal of those sanctions could yet be achieved. Do you see additional steps down the road from the administration? Yeah, I think there are two things really that are probably the most likely in terms of how these sanctions could be escalated. First, I think we could see an expansion of the sanctions imposed for human rights reasons. Prior to the Russian invasion, human rights issues were anticipated to be a tentpole of the Biden administration's sanctions policy. And with reports now emerging of Russian forces massacring citizens in Bukha 
and elsewhere. And earlier this week, I think there were news reports of a Russian soldier pleading guilty to killing an unarmed civilian during a trial in Kiev. I think we're going to see more human rights-based responses. The second area where I think we could see some escalation is a focus on targeting any party helping Russia to evade the effects of the sanctions. Under the Countering America's Adversaries Through Sanctions Act, or CATSA, which is a piece of legislation that came out in 2017, OFAC's authorized to impose secondary sanctions for any transaction that seemed to be significant with a sanctioned Russian party. And Biden administration officials have publicly warned already Chinese companies that they could be at risk for supplying Russian companies in circumvention of U.S. controls. The Department of Commerce has actually issued a list of Russian aircraft that have violated U.S. export controls and are now effectively embargoed. So I think we're going to see more non-Russian entities being targeted to the extent that they're, they continue to do business with sanctioned Russian parties and that that business is seen as evading the effects of the sanctions. I'd like to now ask you to put on your counselor hat. And what are some of the uh, consistent advice you're currently giving to clients? And has that evolved in any way since February? Yes. So the sanctions have been so highly technical. I think it's been somewhat of a wake-up call to some clients that maybe have put their compliance and export control compliance, especially on the back burner. And really to comply with these new sanctions, it's critical to not only assess what's permissible under the law, but also consider what its practical and reputational effects are. So regarding practicality, while Russia is not comprehensively embargoed the same way as, for example, Cuba is, there's still obviously significant risk in conducting transactions there. In particular, about 70% of Russia's banking assets are currently subject to sanctions. And many Western financial institutions who are very risk-averse They'll avoid even legally permissible transactions there. So companies that do want to pursue legal opportunities in Russia should think through very closely the practical aspects of the transaction, in particular, how they'll make payments or get paid for the transaction. Regarding reputation, there are a number of lists online now tracking large Western companies that still have presence in Russia. Yale University has one of the, the more prominent lists. And so therefore, even if a company's activities are permissible and it's doing business legally in Russia, continuing its presence in Russia could still attract unwanted attention and could adversely impact the company's bottom line outside of Russia. So you also mentioned as part of your practice, counsel around compliance. And is compliance, is, is it the or even a key in responding to this changing sanctions landscape? Or is it so unique that everything has to be almost bespoke on a sanction by sanction or company by company basis? It definitely is a key. And as I was alluding to before, I think in some ways these actions have been a wake-up call for companies to bring their compliance programs up to snuff. In particular, in order to comply with these sanctions, it's very, very important that companies be aware of their own products and really know them backwards and forwards and be aware of their suppliers and how those parts and components for their products are being manufactured. And this is because even non-U.S. items that previously weren't subject to U.S. jurisdiction now could fall within U.S. jurisdiction if they're the direct products of things that are made from U.S. software and technology. From the compliance standpoint, it has been a wake-up call for companies to conduct their own due diligence and really understand their own supply chains. That's really interesting the way you phrase that answer because in the cybersecurity space and then a corruption space, in the AML space, the thinking has really evolved around to exactly what you said. Know who you are, know who you're doing business with. And many companies didn't know the answer to either. So it 
it seems like it's really starting out with that that basic inquiry, which actually funnels to a, a more robust business operation exactly. as well. That's exactly right. So let me turn to down the road. There's been a lot of commentary around sanctions being the new FCPA. I'm going to go so far as to ask you, are, are sanctions now sexy? <laughs> and they're so ubiquitous, but they're so important that companies are doing what you've suggested in terms of looking at their own customer and supplier base to prepare for 2025 or even further down the road. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the news coverage of these sanctions actions against Russia, they've gotten the attention of GCs and other corporate leaders, whereas compliance is a back office function. Now it's been somewhat of a wake-up call to ensure that those corporate leaders are making sure that their compliance function is, is adequately resourced so that their compliance folks can take these inquiries into their supply chain, make sure that their employees are adequately trained, and make sure that they're otherwise in compliance. So I wouldn't go so far as to say that it's become the number one thing on AGC's mind, but I, I think its prominence has definitely risen in recent months. What about some of our countries that have been the most traditionally sanctioned? You mentioned Cuba, but North Korea is still around, causing well, at least making waves. And of course, Iran is still around. What work do you see? And I, I probably should add now China, Taiwan. What do you see around those countries and issues relating to them down the road? With Iran, maybe I'll start there. The Biden administration does seem to be seeking out a new version of the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or the JCPOA, which is commonly known as the nuclear deal under the Obama administration. But I think this could be stymied with recent reports of Iran conducting missile tests. And so far, I think with the Biden administration's focus being on Russia, renegotiating the JCPOA has been somewhat on the back burner. But it, it is something I think to watch, especially perhaps after the midterm elections this November. With Cuba, it was widely anticipated that the Biden administration could seek to restore some of the Obama-era de-escalation of the sanctions, but that so far hasn't been the case. I think we could see some limited easing of those sanctions if and when the focus on Russia and China dies down, but much with Iran, I, I think that's probably taken a back burner now to Russia in particular. With North Korea, there's not much more additional sanctions we could impose. So I don't really anticipate there's going to be much material changes there. But in any event, while our sanctions against Iran and Cuba and much of China, for that matter, have been unilateral, sanctions against North Korea have been largely led by the United Nations. So I would expect any further developments would first come out of the UN and then be probably implemented by OFAC. You know, I mentioned China, Taiwan, and I want to go completely nerd on you here because in the energy space, the anti-boycott provisions around the Middle East, Israel and the Arab countries are something that we've struggled with for many years. But there are other countries on that list and that mm -hmm. prohibition, Pakistan, India and China, Taiwan. Are you beginning to see any of the anti-boycott issues begin to bubble up around that because of the increased tension in that part of the world? Not so much with respect to China's relationship with Taiwan, but China's Ministry of Commerce or MOFCOM last year did pass an anti-boycott rule pretty much aimed at some of these U.S. sanctions and export controls targeting big Chinese companies. What we've seen there, there's not been much enforcement on the Chinese side, but it's still in the back of the minds of our Chinese clients. And so it's something that they have to take into consideration and tread lightly. It's a very, I think, difficult needle to thread, but so far it has been workable. Tyler, unfortunately, we are near the end of our time for this episode, but I was wondering if our listeners wanted any more information on yourself 
uh, your practice area or Hughes Hubbard, what would be the best place for them to go? You can go to my firm profile on HughesHubbard.com and I also have a LinkedIn page. Tyler, I'm relatively certain I'll be asking you to come back for another podcast when the next round of sanctions occurs. So thank you so much. And I look forward to continuing this conversation. Thank you for having me on.